All right, always difficult on third Sunday to transition to these things. It's good because we're transitioning in our service, but we're also transitioning in the book of Colossians. So we're, we've gone past our halfway point, and now we're getting to, into the second half of the book. So we're done with the depth of Christology, who Christ is and what he's done. We're done with setting the, the foundation for Christian identity in the gospel and in, in, in the fullness of Christ. And we're done with the polemical warnings against false teachings. So basically describing what these false teachings are and refuting them and bringing the, the foundation from underneath them. As David said, they're rooted in sand. So that's what we saw in the first half of, of the book. You know, Paul opens this letter just praising God for what he's done in Colossae. The gospel is bearing fruit, and I praise him for it. The gospel is bearing fruit in you, and I praise him for it. And I pray that the gospel continues to bear fruit. And the whole basis for that, still in chapter 1, in verse 15, he picks up this, this great Christological statement. It's, it's a confessional statement. I confess this is who Jesus Christ is. This is the foundation of your faith. This is the foundation of the gospel. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is reconciling all things himself. And what he is reconciling among all things is you. And he picks up here in chapter 1 talking about what he's done in you and that his reconciliation is not just to make you better but to reconcile you by making you perfect and blameless before him. And so because he's done that, continue in the faith. And Paul talks about his own struggle for them in the faith and his own struggle so that they will be presented mature before God. And also the encouragement about the mystery that's been revealed to them about their faith. Because there are some who are seeking to erode their faith. There are false teachers who are telling them you must do more. You must think higher. There's some additional human tradition that you have to add on to what the scriptures say. And then to encourage them, he gives several analogies. Circumcision, being cut off from the world, set apart. Baptism, dying and being resurrected in Christ. These things have happened to you. This is who you are. This is your identity. And then the end of chapter 2, getting into some specifics about these false teachings and what they're doing to judge the church in Colossae. So why do I recap all that? Because all that, all of these indicatives, all of these statements of fact, here's who Christ is, here's who you are, here's what the false teachers are, those are essential for Christian practice. So we move from the section of orthodoxy to orthopraxy, right doctrine to right practice. And I want us to think about their relationship to one another because they are essential to understand together. And I'll be honest, this is something that most Christians are lacking. Either there's such a high emphasis on right doctrine that you can be a wretch in your practice, that's intellectualism, or there's such a high emphasis on your practice that you don't know the God of the Bible and so you're just living as moralism, but these two things are inseparable. What we believe and what we do cannot be separated from one another. And far too often, we see people separate their actions from their doctrine. Everything we do must be connected to our doctrine and our identity in Christ. And sadly, this is a disconnect for many people. And as pastors, this is one of the things that we labor over. I've met so many people who could pass a theology test but fail the test of everyday life to apply Scripture to daily activities. Too many people divorce everyday activities and relationships from biblical principles. 
know, I think about Christ when I'm in church. I think about Christ when I'm reading the Bible. But what about when I engage with my coworker? What about when I make financial decisions? You know, we, we know principles. Like husbands, we're supposed to lay down our lives for our wives. And I know guys who can quote that verbatim and fail to do it. Wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Sounds good, but our flesh doesn't want that to happen. We know we're supposed to speak the truth in love, but people think if it's just truth with no love, that's okay, or it's just love with no truth, that's okay. And this is a difficult balance to find, and there's, there's so many of these things. Don't steal. Yeah, but they won't notice. Or if I lie on my uh, taxes, you know, that's okay. Don't lie. But I'm just going to say the version of the truth that I think will make them feel good or will, will make me feel good or paint me in a good picture. These are just the obvious ones. We got to remember, as Paul said, and we've seen this several times in Colossians, our doctrine means nothing unless it affects our walk, unless it translates into who we are and what we do from day in and day out. It means nothing. And every Christian has to live in this tension. The vision of eternity and our identity in Christ that is unchanging while we live in this world below. So our text this morning is going to be driven by four imperatives. And the rest of this chapter is going to be driven by imperatives. These are commands to do things. And these imperatives cannot be divorced from the indicatives that we've seen in the first two chapters. The imperatives, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. Put to death the things of the earth. Put off these things that mark your old way. And so in order to seek and set, you must put to death and put away these things of the flesh. And so the next two weeks we're going to be talking about sanctification. Sanctification, growing in God, being more and more set apart. And sanctification is a double-sided coin with mortification and vivification. If you do not know these words... You know what a mortician does? He attends to dead bodies. Mortification is putting sin to death. Vivification. So you're going to continually putting on Christ. You're putting sin to death and you're living for Christ. This is our sanctification. You cannot just put sin to death and make it all about guilt. And you cannot just say, I'll put on Christ and not put my sin to death. We must put the sin to death first. So that's what we're going to focus on this week. And then next week we're going to get into vivification. Before I get into the passage... Um, so I want to set up just where we are structurally. So there's two sections in our sermon this morning. And yes, I know in the email I said I was going to go through verse 1 through 11, uh, but we're going to focus on 1 through 8 and then um, do 9 through 17 next week. So this, this first section, 1 through 4, is our new identity in Christ and how our identity in Christ directs our practice. And that's Paul's justification for why we do what we do. And this is kind of a transition passage that connects the first half and the second half. Then our next section, uh, 5 through 8, is the practical warnings about indulging the old self. You're new in Christ. Be careful of these things that are marked of the old man. And so we're going to deal with two lists of sins, what that means for us, how we address them, and how that sets up next week. So if you would, and your Bible is going to pick up in Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, 1 through 8. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, if we are in Christ, we are indeed a new creation. How many of us read these lists and identify with these things? Lord, I pray that as we drill in on sin, and as we exalt Christ, that you give us proper perspective, that we are able to see things as you see them with a heavenly perspective. We not be consumed with the things of this this world, the, the things of this world would not be in our hearts or in our actions. That we would put to death everything that you hate so that we may live to Christ. May this be a challenge for your church to each one of us. That way that we may also be encouraged to live and walk in a way that glorifies you. Because we are bonded to your Son. It is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1. If then, this is reiterating, if then, everything I said in chapter 1 and 2, this is what they call an if of reality. This is not uncertainty. If this is true, because it is. If then this is true, now everything else to follow. If then you have been raised with Christ. Same term or the same phrase he uses to apply to baptism. Baptism being that accomplished reality in Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, this is you. Live like it. This is the gospel imperative. You have died with him. He died for your sins. That means if he died on the cross with your sin, you died too. And if he rose again from the grave to new life, putting sin to death, you live to him too. You have died with him. You live with him. So read the rest of it like that matters. If you want more on the baptism discussion, the blog further addressing our position on baptism is on the website. One of the things we're going to see in this section was repeated four times. The name of Christ. The name of Christ is so central to our identity and to our actions that Paul repeats it in every step of the process. If then you have been raised with Christ, you are united with the risen Christ, that means you are resurrected saints. That is your identity. Christ lives, so you live. Christ has resurrected, so you have resurrected. This is what Paul uses as the foundation statement for all of the imperatives. None of this moralistic stuff, do this better, do that better, means anything unless Christ has risen from the grave. None of it means anything unless you have risen with him. If you don't get union with Christ, you are no different than anyone else trying to earn their way to heaven. And if you don't get union with Christ, everything else that follows is moralism. But if you do get it, then there is freedom and joy, and there is a desire to put sin to death. There is a desire to live for Christ. But now we get into this practical part of the book. What does the resurrected life look like? One, it is inseparable from Christ. But in this section, we're going to see two positive commands and two negative commands. The first positive command, 
if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. This seek is an ongoing action. It is a looking, desiring after something. And remember this in contrast to what we see in verse 5 when we get there. This constant practice. Seek the things that are above. And you know, contrary to popular language, there is no seeking without union with Christ. You cannot seek the things of God until God has worked in you. Seek the things that are above because you are united with Christ. And those who are united with him naturally seek after him and the things that bring him glory. And so to kind of put this in perspective, it's not to say that Jesus is limited to heaven. It's not to create some false duality. But he's just saying to give us perspective. The things of heaven, the perfected things, focus on those. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above Why do we look up there? Because that is where Christ is. So the first thing that we learn about our new identity in Christ is it gives us a new perspective. We're not to see the way we saw with our old eyes. We're not to see the way the rest of the world sees. We see where Christ is. We see the things that are above. Like we read in Isaiah 55 earlier, his ways are higher than our ways. We think in terms of how God thinks. We think in terms of things that matter for eternity. That's where, that's where Christ is. And the false teachers, their focus was on the world. The focus was here. Do this practice. Have this higher uh, thought about man's philosophies. But what does Scripture tell us? Psalm 110.1, this great introduction. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand, the place of honor. Why do we look to heaven? Because Christ is on the throne. The book of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews 1, verse 3 and 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1, 15. And he holds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When a king sits down, that means it's finished. When he's acting, he stands. When he sits, that means his work is completed. This king, his work is done. Why do we look to heaven? Because our king has completed it. He is on the throne. And to speak to those who try to worship angels, the writer of Hebrews addresses this in the next verse. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is not just looking up at angels, in angel worship, in spiritual things. This is looking to Christ and him alone who is on the throne. That is the basis of everything we do. Look above where he is. The writer gets into this again in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Ties the church together with the work of Christ. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We run. We endure. How? Looking to Jesus, looking above the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is the how. Despising shame and his seating at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we endure? How do we continue? Because Christ has gone before us. Christ has, en- has endured, and it was joy for him to take lashes for us. It was joy for him to be nailed to the cross. It was joy for him to be pierced, to be mocked. It was joy for him to be buried. 
it was joy for him to be resurrected so that we might be resurrected. How do we set our mind on, on things above? We set our mind on Christ and what he has done for us. So I want you to read the rest of the passage with that perspective. Living with an eye up to the throne of God. But I'm concerned that I see so many Christians who walk through life being consumed with this world. It's like, all right, I got to get through today. I got to get through this step and this step. You heard the term navel gazing? Your navel is right here in the middle of you. You stare down at yourself so much you don't see what's going on around you. And so to have this new perspective, look up. Stop looking down at your feet. Stop looking down. I have to do this. I have to do this as if this world is everything there is. Look up. Christ is on the throne. It should encourage us to walk confidently and to walk boldly. Verse 2. How do we look? By setting our minds on things that are above, not on things that are below. We have a new perspective. We also have a new perception. This perception is we set our minds on things, not just looking with our eyes, but our minds. We renew our minds in this. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Go a few books to the left if you don't know where that is. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to what this new perception looks like. Pick up in verse 12. This is a spiritual perception. When you are united with Christ... You're united with the Father, and you're united with the Spirit. And Jesus sent the Spirit with us so that we can have this perception. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The Spirit is for our understanding. Not for sensationalism, but for us to understand God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You ever wonder why when you share the gospel with people, you share your faith with people who don't know Christ? And like, why don't you get this? They can't. They're not united with Christ, so they can't look and set their minds on things above. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the second thing here. We have a perspective, but we have a perception. We can perceive things in heavenly perspective because we have been given the mind of Christ. His very spirit who he sent to us to remind us of him at all times and to teach us everything that he taught us. We have the mind of Christ. So in order to seek heaven, you must think heaven. In order to seek heavenly things, you must think heavenly things. And so when you have eternity in mind, if you know where your home is, you know where your identity is, you know your, where your reward is, how much do the things on this earth affect me? Can something on this earth that I know is dying, that I know is passing away, can it really affect who my identity is? If my eyes are focused on Jesus, all this other stuff is out of view. But if my eyes are here and so consumed with this world, we lose sight of Christ. But if our eyes are on Christ, we're no longer a slave to the things of this world. We no longer fear the things of this world because our king is on the throne. So in this perception, we have an eyesight. We are given eyes to see. It's kind of like when you get your prescription adjusted. 
you know, you got these blurry spots here or there. You don't really know what to see. You kind of fear what's over there. Am I going to stumble over something? And then you get your prescription adjusted. You get LASIK. It's like, oh, wait a second. I can see clearly. I see what's over there. I see what's over there. Everything makes sense now. There's no more fear. That is how we're meant to be in Christ, to set our minds on things, to see with eternal eyes. And the more we set, the more clear that vision becomes. It's kind of like using a binocular. I can kind of see what's over there, but as I set my mind's eye, as I adjust this, it becomes more and more clear. The more I tweak it, the more I work on it, the better I can see. This is Paul's desire, that you see clearly, that you see things that matter for eternity, that you see things rightly. And this is my prayer this morning. This is my aim in preaching and teaching at all times, that you stop looking at things like an immature child, that you see things with Christ in the right place, in his right place on the throne, that you see things with a biblical perspective, that you know that the word of God is true. You don't have to believe the lies of the world. You don't have to be a slave to the things that are below. Not just intellectualism, not just moralism, but a mind that is set on the things of God, a heart that loves and desires to please him, and actions that agree And so when he says here, set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth, we have to preface that. Because we've got to be clear, and sometimes things can be uh, taken out of context. We're not talking about external daily activities. So when he says here, focus on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, okay, I'm telling you, still brush your teeth, still shower, please. You know, go to work, pay your bills, all of these external things that you must do as being a member of society— And if you still want us to get close to your brothers and sisters, shower, brush your teeth, do all that kind of stuff. So we're not talking about external activities. We're talking about internal pursuits. The things that are below, the things that are on earth, do not desire your heart after things of this world. I live in the world. I do not live for the world. Do you understand the difference? I live in the world, but I do not live for the world. My goals and my aims are not on the things for this world doesn't mean I just check out and move up to the mountains and and become a monk. I do have to live, and there is a tension here. But I don't live for this world. So these two commands, seek the things and set your mind, what are the weight behind these commands? The weight behind these commands we see in verse 3 and 4. Complete salvation. How can we do this? How can we know that it is sure? And what do I mean by complete salvation? Past, present, future. We are united with Christ. Look what he says here. For you have died, past tense, baptized, have died. Your life is hidden, present tense. You are in him now. When Christ appears, you will appear, future tense, past, present, future. You have been justified in Christ. You are being sanctified in Christ. You will be glorified in Christ. Every command comes out of complete salvation. There is nothing that God has not accounted for. There is never a time when you are outside of the grace of God and the love of Christ. So let's work through these a little bit. Verse 3. You have died. Again, this is tying to that gospel story, that gospel truth, that if Christ died to sin, you die with him. If Christ lives, you live with him. So both in regeneration and sanctification, death must come first. Christ must die for you to live. You must die for you to live. 
And so the heart of stone must, must be destroyed to put on a heart of flesh. And a life is pleasing to God. The sins must be destroyed first. Death must come so that life can come as well. So you have died. This has already happened. If you are justified in Christ by faith, you have died. And your life is hidden in him, present tense, right now. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in, is in him, you are hidden. We've talked about this before in the letter. This word means to be secure. The Father has entrusted your life to the Son. There is no sure place where it can be. No one can snatch you out of his hand. No one can separate you from his love. You are his. You are hidden in him. And so the beauty of working through this Christian life is that while you work through this Christian life, while you walk through this tension, Christ has you. As David said earlier, you are his. I've got you. You are hidden in me. So as you struggle, as you try to put these sins to death, I am not only with you, but I have you in my hand. I don't like when people minimize this. And yes, in a sense, Jesus is walking beside me, the whole footsteps thing. But it's so much bigger than that. He's on the throne. He has you in his mighty right hand. And he will never let you go. That is so much better than him walking beside you. And his spirit is inside you. This word hidden means secure, but it also means unseen. So that means the world cannot see what you see. The world does not understand the tension that you have when you hang out with your worldly friends and like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go here. I'm not going to watch this or subject myself to this. They don't understand. It's things that are unseen. The world can't see what, what you see. They will never know the tension that you know. And so that's why we live as aliens. This language exists in the Bible for this reason. Because this tension that we're talking about, everyone here who is regenerated, who knows Christ, knows the tension I'm talking about. Anyone here not know the tension I'm talking about? You don't understand Christianity if you don't. But if you do, the world around you can't possibly get this. Because you so badly want to please God in your actions. But as David said earlier, I have the desire, but I don't know how. My flesh wars against me. We're going to talk about this war. And the first thing that must be done in this war is to put these things to death. You have died with him. Your life is hidden with him. And then we look to the future in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Our future hope is in Christ. We joyfully look forward to his coming. Why? Because he is your life. When Christ, who is your life? When you think of Christ, think of my life. This is so strong. This is so emphatic. And so often in Christianity, we get this wrong. As if like, all right, we just got to get people to the cross, then everything's good. Cross is not the finish line. The cross is the starting line. That is where life begins. Your life begins at the cross, and it belongs in glory. But there's this long race in between. Where I look back at the cross, I know Christ accomplished it. Where I look back, where I look forward and say Christ is coming. But what do I do in the meantime? What do I do until he appears? Sheree brought to my attention yesterday that we are hidden in him. But when he appears, we will appear. We will will be as he is. We will be glorified with him. We will be united to him with this beautiful reunion where all sin and death and pain will be banished forever. And we look forward to that day and we anticipate it. Maranatha, come, Lord, come. 
But until he comes, we walk in this stinking body on this stinking earth that is cursed from the, from the core to the skies. So how do we walk in this Christian life? Cannot forget our union with Christ. Cannot forget we are hidden in him, past, present, and future. But what we must do is put to death. Picking up in verse 5, this second section here. Put to death, therefore. The therefore here refers to everything that comes before. Since you are saved, you are Christ, you are united to him, past, present, future, put to death. This is not a suggestion language. This is, this is mortification, literally. Mortification. Put to death these things. As we've seen in Deuteronomy, there needs to be death so there can be peace. What does God tell Israel over and over and over again? Dispossess these people. Kill them. Run them out of the land. I'm going to run them out of the land. Because if the pagans, if the wickedness still exists, if the wickedness lives next to you, there will be no peace. And you cannot honor me. And it is the same thing in our lives. If we allow our enemies to continue on and we do not kill them, we do not destroy them, there will be no peace in our lives. Some of you wonder why I don't have peace in my life. Because you're letting your enemies camp right next to you. You're letting your enemies camp in your heart. Put them to death. This is not suppress them. This is not give them a stern talking to, put them in the corner, give them time out. Kill them. Leave no breath in them. Loving the Lord means hating what he hates. And God hates with a righteous anger. Look at Romans 8.13. Where Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Mortification must happen in order for vivification. Death must be given to sin so that we might live to Christ. Kill it. This is what we kill. Our first list here of five things. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Remember the, the, the language above, or excuse me, above in the passage. We look above, not on the things that are on earth. This is what he's talking about here. The things that are earthly in you, not external pursuits, but the things that are earthly within you, put them to, to the death. This is speaking about um, a, a nature of the heart. These are five perversions that exist within the human heart. All of them have sexual implications. These are also not one-time sins. These are sinful states of mind and continual practices. They come out of a sinful heart, and they must die. Uh, so with these terms, Paul is very graphic, and Paul is very explicit. I'm going to be very explicit, just so you know, because we need to be honest about these things. Because if you give a quick glance to this list, they exist in our culture everywhere we go. And the church, if the church is not honest about them, the church will end up being subject to them. First word. Put to death, therefore, was earthly among you. Sexual immorality. Greek word, pornea. Sound familiar? This is literally anything that is outside of God's design. When the Greeks used this, it was referring toward uh, prostitution or just general fornication. But in our culture, we have too real of an example of that. We have pornography, which is where the word comes from. It is a show and an exercise of sexuality. 
This is so devastating within our culture. I appreciate David's bravery with that, and so many other men have shared this. If we're honest, this is struggle, if not number one or, or, or two, for almost every man I've ever talked to. And it is before our very eyes. It is everywhere. Our culture tells women to show off your physical assets. And it tells men it's okay to look. And I'm not saying that women don't struggle with the, the, the physical as, as well. But we have to be real that both of those are lies. These, these provocative ideas that exist around us that cause our eyes to divert to those things. These, that's what Paul's talking about. Not the things that are below. Not the things that, that, that fade away that stir in your heart. But we have to realize this starts in the heart. It has to be put to death. Because if you put this to death in your heart, then you're a lot less tempted to look. Or you're a lot less tempted to try to get someone else's attention so that they will look. But we are outnumbered. You look in the culture around us and sexual immorality is rampant. It is celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it, you're the crazy one. And you will be given to pressure by the culture if your mind is not set on Christ and his throne. If you do not look on the things that are above. If you worry about what people say. If you try to, be, if you try to placate the, the, the culture, you're going to get dragged into this. And you're going to begin to legitimize it. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Put it to death. Do not give it, not life support. Put it to death. Because if it has any breath, it will grab hold of you and it will kill you. John Owen is, is uh, famous for this mortification saying, he, if you see it on t-shirts and stuff, get one. It's great. Um, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is the constant process of the Christian. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is the big one. But there are so many, and, and we see all of these in our culture, sexual immorality, impurity. This is just all manner of un uncleanliness and, and, and sin. Anything that is not godliness is impure. This is what we're, we're, we're talking about. This is a very general term. We go from a specific to a, a general. Next word here. Passion. Pathos. In the Greek, we, the, the, the Greek saw it as, as like uh, passion. But Paul sees it as unbridled passion. Paul sees it as a, a fire that is burning in you that is unchecked. It's this inward lust that leads to death. And this evil desire here, something a little bit different. This is something that you reach out for. Something that you are stretching out to get. And the whole goal is I want to grab hold of this. I'm reaching for things. I'm seeking things that will indulge my flesh. This carnal fulfillment, an insatiable hunger for what is evil. Not seeking the things above, but seeking the things that please me. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Study this a lot in Deuteronomy. Desiring things that are not yours. A greed. A greed of people, of things, of even pleasure, because this does speak toward sexual fulfillment. Coveting things that you think will bring you pleasure and you think will bring you fulfillment. This desire to be satisfied in your own desires. Why is this idolatry? Because anytime you think that you need something, anytime you desire something so much that it consumes you, that it becomes a functional God to you, it exalts your feelings and it exalts you above God. 
Is he saying, you are full in Christ, there's nothing else you need, but if you think I need that, you're saying Christ is not enough. You make it another God in your life. And if you do not kill sin, it leads to idolatry. If you let these sins live and breed, they become idols in your life and you worship them and you end up serving them. This is what Paul is saying. Don't serve other gods. Put them to death. And every one of us has an army of little gods in our heart that we have to put to death all of the time. But there's a disconnect here. How many of us look at this list and nod in agreement? but then secretly feed these little idols. Secretly give space in our heart to these things that seek out to please ourselves. Put to death these desires. And also put them to death in your sphere of influence. I think this is important too. Because how often do we see these things? How often do we overlook them? How often... In the movies we watch, in the shows we watch, do we promote to other people? This is what I'm talking about between a disconnect between doctrine and practice. Well, I don't have any sexual immorality in my life, but hey, let's all get together and watch a sexually immoral movie together. I don't, you know, I don't have any covetousness in my life, but let's cheer for the person who wants to get more for themselves. It's a funny little thing because my wife realizes my own flesh and when we're watching a movie and something is going to happen or, or the, it goes in that direction, she's going to be like, cover your eyes, Timothy. And she will literally put her hands over my eyes, which is, which is funny in that, you know, saying it. But she knows my heart, and she knows that it is better that, it, that, that she guards that in me before it goes into my heart. And we have to have that desire. And so, and if it's more than like a second, she's like, all right, uh, this is going too far. We're, we're watching something else. We have to be aware of that. And I'm encouraged by so many of you, especially guys who recognize all of these sexual temptations and saying, all right, I can't put myself in that situation. I've got to step away from it. And being able to be honest with with your spouse, like, I need help in this. Being honest with your, your brothers and your sisters and saying, I am struggling with this. I need you to come alongside me. I need to put this to death in my life. And I can't tell you how many times I have prayed this prayer. Lord, put this to death in my life. Lord, put this to death in my life. It's praying this as I'm sitting on the front row here. This is an ever-present need for the believer. We never stop putting sin to death. Don't ever think that you have conquered sin. It no longer dominates you because Christ has put it to death, but it certainly influences you. And there are two reasons to put this to death. The wrath of God and our old selves, which we'll see in these next two verses. But I want to share one passage with you quickly that kind of summarizes all this. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 4, the next book over, probably two pages in your Bible. We read this this morning before our corporate prayer. And if you're not coming, I encourage you to. It's a good time to pray with one another and hear the prayers and concerns of the body, prepare our hearts for worship. So Paul talks about this, this tension beautifully, because yeah, he's, he's Paul, that's what he does. First Thessalonians 4, verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Don't stop. You're doing well. Keep it up. How long do I keep it up? 
until Jesus returns. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And this is key. I brought this up before. I'm going to keep ringing this bell until I die. For this is the will of God. One of the most common questions. What is God's will for my life? Do I go to this school? Do I go to that school? Do I take this job? Do I go that job? Do I go right? Do I go left? This is God's will for your life. Your sanctification. Wherever you go, whether you go right, whether you go left, that you grow in him. That is God's will for your life. Whether you live under a bridge or you live in a mansion, God's will for your life is that you grow in him, that you are sanctified, that you are more and more set apart for him. If you understand that, the decisions of life will be so much easier. What is God's will for your life? Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, more on that next week, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gave, his Holy, who gave his Holy Spirit to you. Paul understands that this is, these are commands from God. If we make it just about, will someone else catch me, then we're missing the point. God gave us his Spirit to remind us of these things and convict us of these things. And if you are convicted of your sin, good. That means the Spirit is working in you. And you're in good company. Because if you look to the left, right, back, or forward, every one of us has conviction of sin if we are indeed in Christ. And we know it is God's will that we be disciplined in it, that we grow in it, that we are sanctified in him. But as I said before, there are two reasons why you put these things to death. The wrath of God and your old selves. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. These being that list of sins in verse 5. Why put them to death? One, because you died to them. Two, because Christ died to them. And three, because this is why the wrath of God is coming. These things. So people tell you God is not angry. They are lying to you. God is angry with a righteous anger that is justified over sin. The wrath of God will be poured out on these things. And if you want to be associated with the love of God, do what God loves. The wrath of God is coming. His judgment is sure. Many people try to downplay this. Say, oh, the, you know, let's not talk about the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. The wrath of God is coming. Earlier he said, when Jesus, reappear, when Jesus appears, you will appear with him. Yes, when he comes, he will unite the saints to himself. But also when he comes, he will come to judge the Lord. He's coming to bring the saints, and he's also coming with a sword in his mouth. And blood dripping from his garment. He's going to lay waste to the nations because they are wicked and they hate God and they are not putting their sins to death. They're letting them live inside of us. Why do we live like the nations? This is what Paul is saying here. Don't be associated with the wrath of God because you have the righteousness of Christ. Many of your translations, just as a side note, may say sons of disobedience. This is a really tough one to say if this is original. Uh, it's a text or not. The ESV omits it. Um, but either way, it is certainly true. The wrath of God is coming for the sons of diso- disobedience. And interestingly enough, the word disobedience means against God. Uh, that's the, the, the root of the word. So it certainly a- a- applies here. Um, so in these, second thing, wrath of God, you too once walked. This is your old self. 
You too once walked, and you were living in them. These are ongoing practices that were associated with your old self. Put them to death because they're associated with the, with the wrath of God. And your life was marked by these. The same these that they're referring to earlier. As Paul has said many times in this letter, walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. Walk in Him. This continual rhythm of your life. Don't go back to the old rhythm. Go in this new rhythm of life. And this is a humble reminder. Don't think too highly of yourself. Because you used to walk in these. Don't look at the world. Oh, the world does this. The world does that. Even if you did not do any of the actions that those things led to in that previous list, your heart has entertained all of them. So this language here in verse 8. But now you must put them all away. You must put them all away. Uh, this is a language of putting off old clothes. Uh, so literally take them off, put them over there. Uh, you know, it's like your, your before and after picture. No one ever wants to go back to the, the, the before picture. You know, get, get rid of it, take it off. No one loses weight and then puts the fat clothes back on. Take them off. The old clothes, and guys, we've all got one of these. You ever, anybody have one of those, th- those shirts that's got too many holes in it, too many stains on it, but it is comfortable and you love it, but you're not going to walk outside in it. If someone has given you new clothes, you don't walk in these old clothes. This is what children do. This is my favorite shirt. I'm not taking this off. It doesn't fit you anymore. Your father's going to give you new clothes. But there's always this temptation to hold on to what is, is comfortable. I want to go back to that shirt. I want to go back to that outfit. But it's not just clothes. It's behaviors. This whole list is a list of behaviors here. Put off in maturity what you were marked by in your immaturity and in your old self. Put them off. Another five graphic terms here. But these are different. The previous five were issues of the heart. These five are issues that are addressed to one another. These are issues that creep up in the church. So we're going to look at at, at this list. Because all of these cause disunity. And the wicked heart, if you don't put it to death like the previous five words, these will spill out of your heart in these five words. And I'll tell you, this is easy to preach on because this stuff is obvious. This is difficult to preach on because I have seen the struggle in my own life in every one of these on the list. Put them, not just some of them, put them all away. Anger. Um, this is a deep, bubbling emotion, kind of like the, the passion that we saw in the previous list. But the difference here is that if that anger, that emotional fire that you have within you, if it's not put to death, it will bubble up not just into temptation, but also into temper. And the same unkilled sin that is, with, that is within you will cause you to lust after someone else, but you also put it into practice and, and, and apply that anger towards someone else. Anger, wrath. We've seen that God's wrath is coming, and this is a common mistake people do. They put us on the same plane with, with God and say, God has wrath, we have, have wrath. Wrath is wicked in us, wrath is wicked in God. You do not make the argument from the lesser to the greater. We do not put God into our terms. We also cannot put us and God on the same plane. God is higher. His ways are higher than our ways. His wrath is higher than our wrath. His wrath is not influenced by sin and emotionalism and selfishness. His wrath is righteous. And that is the difference. Our wrath comes from a wicked heart. 
We, we got to make sure that when someone makes that comparison, that we address them properly. Next, malice. This we've all been guilty of. The definition of malice, ill will, vicious, deliberate intention of doing harm. Ill will, vicious, deliberate intention in doing harm. Now, this one seems a little harder to prove, but every one of us has that person in like, they did this to me in traffic, they did this to me in the line in the grocery store, my family did this, and so I'm going to get back at them, I'm going to do this, I, I want them to suffer. Oh, I wish they would just crash because he cut me off, anyone ever said that? You know, like how often have we approached relationships, how many times have we done this? And this one I know we're all guilty of. Slander. Slander. The word here in the Greek, blasphemia. Sound familiar? It's irreverent, abusive speech. Mocking, defamation of character. When you blaspheme God, you defame his character. When you slander someone else, you defame theirs. Ever said things that, to paint a person in a particular light? To bring to task their deficiencies? The speck in their eye without, while ignoring the log in, in, in yours by addressing them and wanting them to be caused shame, wanting to bring someone down. The reason this list appears where it does is because in this next section, we're going to talk about life in the church, sanctification in the church. And if you slander other people in the church, there will never be peace in the church. You must put these things away. You must put them off. How deadly our tongues can be. It is the slander and it is the abusive speech that causes so much hurt. We'd almost rather someone punch us in the face than, than, than tear us down verbally. The wounds of, the, of, of our flesh heal, but the wounds of our heart take a lot more time. This last one here. An obscene talk from your mouth. How easy is this to fall into? How easy is it just to just blurt something out? Get around people who talk like this, old friends, fall right back into it. Be desensitized through the entertainment that we put into our, our minds and how common this is in the world around us. We are to be different. We're not to be known for the obscenities and the curseness and the vulgarity of the world around us. But it's so easy when it's trivialized. And we have to guard that in each other. And just as we look at this list, how often are we guilty of them? How often do we give into them? How often do we approve of them? How often do we miss the discontinuity in our own lives? Like, I know these things, but do I practice them? Do I approve of them? Does God's word, does, does heavenly things direct everything else in my life? We must put off these things in ourselves and seek to put them off in others so that we can live together. And it's a great setup for next week. You know, how can I live for Christ? How can I live within the body of Christ if I'm still living for the flesh? We must at the same time beat our bodies into submission. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, so that I may not be disqualified. There's a physical struggle that happens in these things. We also must take every thought captive to Christ, as he says in 2 Corinthians 10. There's a physical and mental struggle in these things, and we must be diligent in them. 
We must seek to put them to death. And we must lovingly do it in each other. And let me just put this out there before we close. This is not um, approval for sin hunting in each other. Look at what you're doing. First examine yourself. Put it to death in yourself first. These are addressed to you first. And only out of love can you do this in someone else. Heard a great quote from a pastor regarding this. You know, where you have made a great deposit, you can make a great withdrawal. Meaning, if you have invested in someone's life and they know that you love them and care for them, you have earned the right to address issues in their life. But if you have not made a deposit in their life and try to make withdrawals, you will find your account deficient. We must seek to do this, make investments in each other's lives. That way, when our brother or sister is struggling with sin, we will have that investment in and we can begin to walk alongside them in love. We just say, hey, look at your sin, look at your sin, look at your sin. It becomes divisive. It is the truth without love, and we must have both. So quickly, just a recap of what we looked at. Seek the things above. Set your mind on the things above. Why? Because Jesus is there. That's where the throne of God is. That's where the finished work of Christ is. And that is where our identity and our hope lies. Know you are his. If you have died with Christ, you are his, past, present, and future. When he reappears, you will appear with him because you are hidden in him now. Do you believe that? Do you know that? If you have not died with Christ, you are dead apart from him. He will return and say, I never knew you. Put your faith and trust in him because it is only in him that you are secured forever. And because of him, that we can put these things to death in our life and put away what offends him and what causes division within the body. Then we will have right orthodoxy and right orthopraxy. We we will be people wholly set apart to his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word. It is your word that comforts us and restores us when we are broken. It is your word that breaks us down and humiliates us when we are arrogant. And it is your word that reminds us that we are hidden in Christ. And it is your word that reminds us that our flesh is still raging against him and hates him. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. That by being united to him, I've died with him, I'm justified. I'm hidden in him, I am sanctified, and I will appear with him. I will be glorified in him. And if you are in Christ, say these words confidently. Stake your life on it because he is your life. And if he is your life, it will be so easy to put to death the things of the flesh. And He will be glorified. He will be exalted and you will be restored. I pray these things for you and I pray this for our body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.